Um, thank you, Beth L, for your partnership today. Rabbi Nitzan Steinkoken, great to see you, and thank you for being with us. And um, oh, good. Yes. You, oh, yes. And if you want to share a few remarks about your Talmud class, please, we'd love to hear from you. Yes, um, uh, Rabbi Dr. Myra Westerman, we are very excited here at Beth L. We 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 read in your book, at least I and a few people of our Talmud class, it, I, I have to be honest, I didn't quite finish it, but in the last four weeks, we meet weekly, the last four weeks, we've devoted our studies to the tractate of Avodah Zarah and a few sugiyot that come up in your book. And so we're very, very excited that you're here to teach us now. So very welcome here to our Zoom. Wow, wow. I'm thrilled to be with you. That's so fun to know. And I'm like, so it will be great to have an exchange after actually reading my book. You're one of a very small number of people in the world. So that's very, very gratifying. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Very nice. So friends, um, we have programs every day, learning programs every day. We'll hope you'll continue to join us uh, for our ongoing series of learning. We have a Rav Cook series. We just started part one of 10. Uh, the 39 Malachot is every Tuesday morning different opportunities for learning and put that learning into action each week. We're also starting to engage with Jewish communities around the world. As was just mentioned, we learned this morning with Jews in Vienna and Germany and in, um, in Switzerland. Um, and uh, we're, we'll be doing something with South Africa, some communities in South Africa in just a few weeks. The chance for us to celebrate our Jewish unity through the creativity and power of Jewish learning together. So today's format will be about 40 to 45 minutes of um, presentation from our scholar and then the opportunity to uh, to open up the, the conversation and questions from everyone. Of course, feel free to chat on the side uh, between now and then. We'll always try to stick to our hour together uh, to honor everyone's time. It's, uh, it's a delight to uh, welcome Rabbi Dr. Mira Wasserman, who's on the faculty of the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College, where she teaches courses on uh, on classical rabbinic texts and their historical context and directs the Center for Jewish Ethics. She worked as a congregational rabbi for over a decade before turning to full-time teaching and scholarship and has a special interest in how the Talmud can serve as an ethical guide to Jews and non-Jews of all backgrounds today. She's excited to join you from her home outside Philadelphia, where she lives with her husband and kids and her kids, turtle and tarantula. <laughs> so that's great we're excited maybe you'll maybe you'll you'll give us a little tour you'll give us a little tour at some point so friends as you know our topic today is strangers in a strange text non-jews in and around the talmud this is a very very important topic given given the, the demographics of the jewish world today and uh, given pressing ethical concerns and we're gonna we're gonna dive right in so rabbi dr mira wasserman welcome thank you for joining us uh, thank you. It's really a delight to be here. I'll tell you a funny story. You know, it, now that we're all on Zoom world, uh, I've, I've, been, I've watched as all of these presenters have had their cats and dogs snuggle up to them while they're giving presentations. Turtles and tarantulas just don't do it. So I'm not going to share them right now. Um, but greetings from Philadelphia. I'm delighted to be with you. And I'm going to share my screen so that you can um, see some of my slides uh, right now. Okay, so um, we're calling this Strangers in a Strange Text, Non-Jews in and around the Talmud. And I feel like even that title needs a bit of unpacking. So let me give you a bit of an overview of the topics that I wanna talk about today. 
Um, the first thing we'll talk about uh, is actually a literary question, a question of textual analysis, which is how does the Talmud treat non-Jews? But what I, what I will bring out in the talk is that really we can't get at that question of literary or textual interpretation until we address another question, which is a historical question, which is about, about how non-Jews do and have treated the Talmud. And by telling that story of the history of non-Jewish interventions and participation in the world of the Talmud, I hope to be able to hint at the provocative proposal that the Talmud has actually served as a place of encounter between Jews and non-Jews, real and imagined. I'm gonna be trying to paint a picture of the Talmud as a meeting place where Jews and non-Jews met each other, imagined each other, uh, shaped their relationship. And the surprising piece of the story for me um, was how active non-Jews were in the story of making the Talmud that we have today. So um, as you already heard, the, I'm gonna be delving into some of the research that lay behind uh, this book um, that I wrote. This book has been out around four years ago. But instead of merely telling you some of the um, results of my research, I wanna sort of take you on the journey of my investigation, my process of discovery. And um, to do that, we're gonna go back uh, more than 20 years to where I was living at the time in Bloomington, Indiana. This is what the downtown of this lovely college town looked like when I moved there uh, in 1998. This is where I started my career as a congregational rabbi. And uh, this is a picture of what the shul looked like at the time. It's since I'm happy to say uh, been expanded. Um, but uh, I started there in 1998 and I'd been on the job a very, very short time um, when um, that July uh, we got reports that there was new hate activity uh, locally. Now the region um, had been a place of white nationalism um, for decades. Um, and we knew that actually in the past, this is the second building, the first one had been firebombed, but the way that we knew that there was a new threat of white nationalism in the area was that there were pamphlets of uh, white supremacist anti-Semitic propaganda that began showing up on people's lawns. Um, it was really vile stuff, about a 20 page pamphlet with lots of uh, hateful expressions directed against black people, against immigrants of all kinds, mostly against Jews. Um, and the real striking thing for many of my congregants was about how much attention was directed to the Talmud. So I don't like to share this material especially, but I'll give you just a glance at it. This is sort of a two page spread that was uh, in the middle of this pamphlet where you see uh, that the Talmud is accused of being both the evidence of how terrible Jews are and the source of uh, Jewish uh, misanthropy. And there's a long list of purported citations from the Talmud, but actually from other parts of Jewish literature um, that quote things, mostly that purport to be quotations of 
the Talmud saying nasty things about non-Jews. Um, I don't like spending so much time with this material, so I'm going to put on a prettier picture. Um, but uh, from that long catalog, um, you might have noticed that um, some of those so-called citations are really too garbled to make uh, any sense of. Um, some seem to be pure fabrications. Um, some are somewhat accurate citations of actual Jewish texts. Of course, they are taken out of context. Um, so as I, as, when I saw this material, it sparked my curiosity and it also raised a lot of concerns among my congregants who were aghast and disturbed um, to find that there might, might be such hateful content um, in the Talmud. So it's at that point, um, a long time before I entered full-time scholarship, that the seeds of this project, that this question of how exactly does the Talmud treat non-Jews were planted. And so sometime later, many years later, when I went back to full-time study, um, that became the focus of my doctoral research. Um, and uh, as I was studying, um, I kept encountering some of these infamous texts attributed to the Talmud, where uh, the Talmud purportedly said nasty things about non-Jews. So this is just one example. Um, going back about 10 years, there was this big undertaking uh, in Jordan to translate the whole of the Talmud uh, into Arabic. Um, it actually is um, a really hopeful project in a lot of ways. Um, but it's also uh, the way it was enacted is somewhat troubling. So you could see how a translation project, translating one culture to another, especially cultures uh, that have so much conflict between them, could be a real step towards greater understanding and toleration. But when this translation was, um, was, was finally published, um, there was lots of concern that the message that was accompanying the translation was one that wouldn't help relations between Jews and non-Jews, but would actually hurt them. And so let me um, show you an excerpt from, um, from the press release that came from the ADL. It read, the translation published by the Middle East Study Center, a Jordan-based think tank, features an introduction that repeatedly distorts and takes out of context certain passages in the Talmud, including the selective use of quotations, leaving the misleading impression of a pervasive attitude of antipathy toward non-Jews mandated by Jewish religious law and teachings included among the baseless conclusions in the introduction are charges that the Talmud promotes trickery, cheating, and murder of non-Jews. Okay, so it's interesting because that material that's highlighted as being in the introduction to this Arabic language Talmud is very, very similar to the content um, that I found in this anti-Semitic tract. Um, so the charges are disturbing for sure, but it raises the question, are these charges indeed baseless as the ADL suggests? 
So to get at the story, I want to look at uh, begin looking at text. Um, this is a text that shows up on that infamous list of um, of, of uh, passages that was um, in the anti-Semitic propaganda, and um, it actually the we're going to look at two texts. This is the one we have to look at for some context. This is the earliest articulation of what is known as the seven Noahide commandments. The seven Noahide commandments um, are a really important topic in this overall topic of relations between Jews and non-Jews because the seven Noahide commandments are an ancient Jewish tradition that there are certain commandments and certain principles that unite all people, that all the children of Noah are bound to certain basic human obligations to allow for a fair and just society. And this is the list that's laid out in the Tosefta, an early rabbinic work. These are the seven, establishing courts of law, a prohibition against idolatry or avodah zarah, a prohibition against cursing God's name, against sexual offenses, against bloodshed, against theft, and against eating the limb of a living animal. So those are the seven Noahide commandments and they've been celebrated by many Jewish thinkers as the foundation for Jewish principles of universalism and that they're articulating ideas and obligations that can bring all human beings together. Now, that's, that's the nice part, that's the easy part. But if we keep reading in the same section of the Tosefta, the Tosefta adds some glosses or explanations about what, what each of these seven commandments entails. And here's where we get to the difficult material. Um, and these are just excerpts from um, longer explanations, but the Tosefta reads concerning bloodshed, in what sense? And then it says, a non-Jew against a non-Jew or a non-Jew against a Jew is liable. A Jew against a non-Jew, that is a Jew who kills a non-Jew is exempt from punishment. And then it goes on and we also have a similar gloss concerning the prohibition against theft. The Tosefta reads, a non-Jew against a non-Jew or a non-Jew against a Jew is prohibited, asur but a Jew against a non-Jew, that means that they're talking about the use of, a, of a, an object that has been stolen is permitted, mutar. Okay, so that's what the Tosefta says. And so it seems that there is a double standard in how these apparently universal principles are to be applied to Jews and non-Jews. I'm suggesting that when the, the introduction to that Arabic Talmud suggests that there is something discriminatory against non-Jews. It's not a baseless accusation, but it's rooted in real text. Now, what happens when we look at how the Talmud addresses these traditions? Because the Talmud does cite this very text from the Tosefta. And um, here, again, we're going back to the process of my investigations. I found something that was initially really confusing. What does the Talmud say 
in quoting these texts. Well, in the Babylonian Talmud, Tractate Sanhedrin 57a, uh, when I opened up my volume of the regular Vilna printed edition, I found a discussion not of the Goy or the non-Jew, but rather of the Kuti or the Kuthite. Now, Kuti is um, how the rabbis talked about the ancient people known as the Samaritans who, um, who lived in the Northern Kingdom of Israel and survive in a very, very small community um, until today. But this was striking to me that in the Talmud, the so-called, the, the alleged double standard against non-Jews seems to disappear. And instead we find the Talmud attributing this uh, double standard to the difference between the treatments of Jews and Kusites, of Kutim. What was going on? Well, I dug a little deeper and I found that what I had found in my Vilna print edition of the Talmud was not in every edition of the Talmud. And in fact, if I checked the manuscripts, I would find not the Samaritans, not the Kusites, but rather, just as I saw in the Tosefta, this mention of a non-Jew against a non-Jew or a non-Jew against a Jew, theft being prohibited, but a Jew against a non-Jew being permitted. So the, the manuscript versions maintained the same language of the Tosefta. So what happened? Here I'm just laying it out that there's one version of the Talmud, the Talmudic manuscripts and the early prints, that means the, the earlier evidence for how the text went, um, read as a text about the treatment of non-Jews and the Vilna edition, a later print that has become standard, uh, replaced that language of the non-Jew with the Kuthite. So what happened? I didn't totally realize at the time but I was encountering evidence of censorship of the Talmud that had been introduced into the language of the Talmud in the early modern period. What happened? This happened because as I'm going to suggest to you, the invention of the printing press is what allowed for uh, a new intervention into the text of the Talmud the invention of printing and the beginning of the censorship of the Talmud and other Jewish literatures were intertwined historically. So to tell this story, we need to go back, uh, to go back in time. Um, I'm showing you here an image of a beautiful medieval manuscript of Tractate Avodaza Ra, which will be uh, the focus for the rest of our time together. Um, this is a beautiful manuscript. You can see the handwriting um, is, is just so clear, so easy to read. It's a Spanish manuscript. And um, this is an example of how people would have encountered the text of the Talmud before the invention of the printing press. And you can see that these pages of Talmud, which were handwritten, are quite different from pages of Talmud that we're used to today. Um, and I'll, I'll have some examples of what early prints looked like um, in a bit. We have very few manuscripts of the Talmud that survive. 
um, for, especially from this period. And that's largely because of the sad, uh, violent history of anti-Semitic attacks against the Talmud. So there was a rash of burning the Talmud um, that began with accusations against the Talmud in the 13th century by a man whose name was Nicholas Donan, who, had, uh, who was raised as a Jew um, and became a Christian and um, then intervened with the Christian authorities and guided them in accusing the Talmud of misanthropy um, and mass burnings of, of Talmudic manuscripts resulted. Um, I want to focus, however, on another period in the history of the Talmud that begins um, with a time of wonderful cultural flourishing after the invention of the printing press, when we have um, the first examples of the printed Talmud emerging from Italy. So right here, you have one of the first volumes of Talmud ever printed. Um, this is by, uh, they're, they're known as the, we, we, we treat them as, a fam, as the Soncino or Soncino family. Um, that's where um, this rabbinic family was centered in Italy. Um, and they printed the first volumes of the Talmud. And you can see already in their printing, they introduced many um, of the innovations that remain with us um, in terms of Surat Hadaf, the actual shape of the Talmudic page. So they were the first um, to put the text of the Talmud in the middle and surround it with the words of of Rashi on one side and the Tosavists uh, on the other. They introduced the, um, uh, this norm of, of using a different script um, for the commentaries to set it apart from the main Talmudic text. Today, we call that different typeface um, Rashi script. Um, and um, so th this is one example. Um, but I also wanted to show you uh, the example from Daniel Baumberg. Um, it seems that, um, that the, the Soncino family retired from printing the Talmud um, because of competition from Daniel Baumberg. Now, um, this is a really important chapter in the story of Jewish, non-Jewish relations because Daniel Baumberg became the most important printer of the Talmud and probably in, in that way rivals um, some of the greatest rabbis in terms of what he did for disseminating Jewish learning. But Daniel Bomberg was not a Jew. Um, Daniel Bomberg, you can see, adopted many of the innovations that, um, that the Soncino family had used. So he too puts the text of the Talmud in the middle and then he has Rashi and the Tosafists around, uh, around the side. Um, he has the distinction of being the first to print an entire shaft, the, all of the volumes of the Talmud in one edition all together. Um, he also established what became the standard pagination. So um, just a moment ago, when I referred to Sanhedrin, I don't know what page I was on, was it 57A? In the Vilna edition, those that became the standard way 
uh, to talk about sections of the Talmud, but it could only happen once, um, once the Talmud was printed. And so pagination could be standardized because as long as there were manuscripts, different scribes would take up a different amount of space and, and it wasn't standardized. Um, so Daniel Bomberg is also responsible for printing the first uh, printed Yerushalmi or Palestinian Talmud, excuse me. And um, he also was the first to print Mikra Okadolo, the rabbinic um, Bible commentary volume. Um, that's Daniel Bomberg. Now, even as there was this um, wonderful flourishing of Jewish learning made possible by the printing of Jewish books, especially of the Talmud, there was also a new and violent threat against both the Talmud and those who studied it. Um, Pope, John, Pope Paul IV um, was born Giovanni Pietro Carafa, and he led the Roman Inquisition as Cardinal Carafa before he uh, rose to become Pope. Uh, he used his power as part of the Inquisition um, to make violent attacks on Christian Protestants, Hebraists, and humanists from the Christian community, uh, as well as on Jews. And so um, um, he is known um, for burning books and also um, for, for burning for burning people. Um, he was so violent um, and um, so feared uh, that uh, when he died, apparently his offices were, were um, ransacked. Um, but it's under his watch that there was a new rash of Talmud burning. So this is an edict ordering the burning of the Talmud um, from Venice, which was the center of Jewish printing, uh, where Daniel Bomberg was and his printing press uh, were centered um, from 1553. And um, this was a sad day in Jewish history uh, in this central square in Rome. There were mass burnings of the Talmud. Um, shortly thereafter, there were burnings um, in Venice, in many other cities. Um, and according to reports of the time, there were scarcely any volumes of the Talmud that survived, threatening uh, the very preservation of the Talmudic tradition. Um, against that backdrop, um, we can understand perhaps the significance of this new practice of censoring the Talmud uh, and and how how it emerged. So I'm showing you here a picture of the official index of prohibited books. This is not the first version of this list of prohibited books um, that comes out. And um, in fact, there's an earlier version in which the Talmud is altogether banned. So what we're going to read here is a change in the prohibition of, of, of the Talmud. It reads, but if they shall be published without the title Talmud and without calumnies and insults to the Christian religion, they, meaning volumes of the Talmud, shall be tolerated. 
So this is an interesting piece of history. Some people ask me why some people talk about the Talmud and other people talk about Gemara. Um, one of the answers has to do with this new alteration in the ban. It's after this ban in the 16th century um, that the word Talmud stops appearing on printed volumes of the Talmud and is replaced by Gemara. Why? Because the word uh, Talmud is banned by the Christians who are in control after all of all of the printing presses. This is also the beginning of a deeper uh, tradition of censorship of the Talmud. Um, Jews um, welcome the opportunity to begin printing the Talmud again, even though it means that they need to tolerate uh, censorship. And every time that um, non-Jews are mentioned in the Talmud, they uh, agree for there to be alterations to the original text. They agree to these alterations because without making them, they understand that the Talmud will not be allowed to be printed at all. Um, so this is an example uh, of what happens in this era of, of censorship. Um, this is the most censored edition of the Talmud in that it doesn't include at all the whole tractate of Avodah Zarah. Avodah Zarah is the Hebrew term for idolatry. And this is the tractate um, that my study focused on because it's the tractate that um, most directly engages questions of Jews and non-Jews and how they interact. And you can see at the very bottom of this page is where you have the official approval of the censor, the official censor who's working for the church named Marco Marino. And what historians of this time point out is that in many of the print shops, you had censors working together with rabbis to oversee the printing of these volumes. Um, now, uh, in the end, um, well, let me let me show you something else. I think this is really interesting. This is um, this is a volume uh, of Avodah Zarah that was printed in Krakow. Um, and uh, this this is really interesting because this printing of Avodah Zarah happened singly. It, they didn't um, print any other tractates and that leads historians to guess that it was intended to complete that controversial Basel edition, which had left Avodah Zarah out. So um, let me show you actually, before we go there, I don't know if you can see, I'm showing you the first page, page 2A of um, Tractate Avodah Zarah begins Lifne e Dehen Shell of De Avodah Zarah. Uh, this is um, from the Mishnah that says, beginning three days before non-Jewish festivals, one is prohibited to engage in commerce and trade with non-Jews. Um, but when I say non-Jews, I'm speaking about the original language. Here, the reference to non-Jews, which in the original would have been goyim, is replaced. You can see the Hebrew letters ayin, ayin, 
Zion are uh, or practitioners of idolatry. So the term for non-Jews has been replaced by the term for idolaters. And the reason that was so important to the Christian censors is because it was quite clear to them as pious Christians that they were not idolaters. They took every place where non-Jews were identified in the Talmud, changed that, that to idolaters, thereby changing the meaning. And um, if the Talmud vilified idolaters, Christians understood that they were not the objects of that vilification because they were not idolaters. They were Christians. So let me show you, um, if you were to open a Talmud today to that first page of Avodah Zarah, what you might find. And this is really, really interesting. If you look at the standard printed version, I don't know if people open books anymore, just find it on Safari. But if you were to open a volume of the Talmud, the Vilna print has this censored language of Ovdei Kohavim, of star worshipers or idol worshipers. And that's also the language that the Schattenstein versions of the Talmud uh, have, have embraced, the censored version. If you look at the manuscripts, and interestingly enough, this is what the Steinzeltz volume has, uh, has adopted. They have the original language of Goyim, of non-Jews or Gentiles. Um, and if you do find your Talmudic passages on Sepharia, I was interested to see that they make this interesting effort to elide the difference in that the Hebrew maintains the censored version, replacing the word goyim with obdei kochavim or idolaters. So there you see the censored version in the Hebrew, but in the translation, they've restored the original meaning. I wanted to talk a little bit about Amnon Raz Krakotskin, who um, he's an Israeli historian who wrote this fascinating book called The Censor, the Editor, and the Text. Amnon Raz Krakotskin has this very fascinating thesis that one of the reasons that the Jews in the rabbinic community um, embraced the intervention of the censors went beyond what I suggested, that a censored, I was suggesting that a censored text is better than no text at all. But Roscoe Koskin suggests that it goes beyond that, that actually the Jews of early modern Europe were eager to introduce certain changes into the text, into Jewish learning and tradition, because they recognized that uh, that even a hint of intolerance of others, of intolerance to non-Jews, would threaten the case that they could make for their full participation in European society and for emancipation. And he argues that in embracing censorship, it was an early nod towards trying to rid Jewish tradition of aspects of the tradition that Jews understood would get in the way of, um, of their full participation. And so he saw the Jews who participated in the censorship as embracing a more universalist vision of what Jewish teachings could be than those few passages that do vilify non-Jews and set up a double standard would have suggested. 
Now, if this seems like a far-fetched thesis that Rasker Kotskin is putting forward, uh, I want to strengthen his case by pointing out that this was not the first time that Jews embraced a more universalist understanding of Jewish law and Jewish teaching. So if we go back uh, to the 13th century to Provence, uh, the great Talmudic commentator, the, who we know is the Me'iri, um, had already gone to the trouble of interpreting all of those passages um, in the Talmud, especially in Avodah Zarah, that seemed to introduce um, a second-class treatment to non-Jews. And he argues very explicitly that, that those teachings, that those laws, should not be seen as applying to Jews' contemporary neighbors. He says, when we read that prohibition, for example, against having any kind of commercial interchanges with non-Jews before their festivals, we need to understand that that prohibition does not extend to the Christians with whom we are doing business. It rather was limited to a time when Israel was living among actual idol worshipers. For the Me'iri, the Christians are not idol worshipers. And so it is, according to him, permitted to have all kinds of exchanges with one's Christian neighbor. He writes, it appears to me that these matters all pertain only to worshipers of idols and their forms and images. But nowadays, these activities are wholly permitted. So what I'm suggesting uh, is that when the Talmudic text was actually censored, was changed, and the word goyim was changed to obdei avodah zarah, or obdei kochavim, changed from Gentile to idol worshiper, that was in the spirit of this, uh, of this tradition of interpretation that the Me'iri had already introduced. Furthermore, we don't have to wait for the medieval period to find Jews who are expressing discomfort with the treatment of non-Jews in some of our texts. So this is a, um, an ancient midrash from Sifrei Devarim. Um, so this is a, from a time before the Talmud, from um, earlier generations of rabbis tell this story and it is retold in different ways, both in the Palestinian Talmud and the Yerushalmi and also in the Babylonian Talmud and the Babli, but here's the story. Once the government of Rome dispatched two soldiers and said to them, go disguise yourselves as Jews and examine their Torah. What is its nature? They went to Rabban Gamliel and Usha. They read scripture and studied the Mishnah, Midrash, Halachot, and Haggadot. At the time of their departure, they said, all of your Torah is beautiful and praiseworthy, except for one thing, that the stolen property of a non-Jew is permitted and of a Jew is prohibited but we will not report this thing to the government. So this story raises a lot of interesting questions of interpretation and some might be wondering if this is an actual historic report. Did this really happen? Well, we have no idea. I'd like to suggest that it did not happen but rather is uh, the result of a rabbinic imagination of a self-consciousness on the part of the rabbis who themselves in this very ancient period 
see some of the teachings of Jewish tradition with regard to non-Jews as a vulnerability, as something that they're not comfortable with, maybe because of the ethics of it, maybe it seems unfair and unjust and unethical to them to have a double standard with regard to theft. Um, and maybe they just realize that, wow, if word gets out, they're not gonna like it. The non-Jews who uh, are in control, they're not gonna like it. And so it puts us at risk. Both of those are possible interpretations. But I, what I'd like to bring out in sharing this story um, is that there's a long history of Jewish grappling with the Talmud and earlier rabbinic literature's treatment of non-Jews. And um, we're getting to the end of, of the time. So I, uh, we, we've given a lot of attention to the opening words of Tractate Avodah Zarah. I wanna give the last word to the last words of Tractate Avodah Zarah. So we're back in the world of the Talmud. Um, and th this is literally the very, very end of this uh, infamous Tractate of Avodah Zarah. Here's the story, Mar Yehuda, and Bati Bartuvi were sitting in the presence of King Shapur. They were served a citron. The king cut a piece and ate it. He cut another piece and gave it to Bati Bartuvi. He stuck the knife into the earth 10 times, cut another piece and gave it to Mar Yehuda. Bati Bartuvi said to him, and am I not a Jew? And the king said, turning to Mar Yehuda, with you, I am certain of this, but with you, Bati Bartuvi, I am not certain. So let me pause there. This is a story that maybe needs some unpacking. King Shapur is the non-Jewish king in Babylonia. And Mar Yehuda apparently is a pious Jew of the time. And Bati Bartuvi is a Jew as well. So uh, they are guests of the non-Jewish king and having a snack together. Now, uh, Bati Bartuvi is very concerned to find that though they both have Jewish backgrounds, the king is treating these two guests differently. He sticks the knife into the earth 10 times before giving Mar Yehuda a piece of his etrog. What's going on here? Well, as Bati Bartuvi sees, the king is making a special effort to kosher his knife to make sure that Mar Yehuda will feel comfortable eating in his home. And Bati Bartuvi takes offense at this and say, why do you go to this extra step of extending such hospitality to Mar Yehuda and not to me, am I not a Jew? Why don't you take care to kosher your utensils before you serve me? So uh, there's two versions of the end of the story. The one I already read is that the king says, well, I'm just not so sure of your Jewish commitments. Maybe casting some aspersions against Bati Bartuvi for his practice. And then the alternative ending is a little more scandalous. Some say he said to him, remember what you did last night? And this cryptic comment is explained in the commentaries as, uh, as being this, that according, according to Rashi, 
uh, King Shapur provided his guests with, uh, with some female entertainers or prostitutes, Mar Yehuda said no to them, Badzi Bartuvi let them in, and that's how King Shapur knew that one of his Jewish guests was far more pious than the other. So this is a really colorful, fun story with which to, to end a tractate, which uh, is, is quite serious. Um, and I love the story uh, for a lot of reasons, but one of them is the way that it envisions the possibility of real exchange and hospitality among Jews and non-Jews. It envisions a non-Jewish king as being someone who can be learned about Jewish practice and Jewish teaching. Uh, and it goes even further in suggesting that Jews and non-Jews um, could be friends to each other, can share a laugh and a joke and have a nice time together. So on that note, I'll end my formal presentation and I look forward to entertaining your questions. Thank amazing, you. Amazing, amazing. Rabbi Dr. Mira Wasserman, so interesting. So, so interesting. Friends, we have about um, 15 minutes together. So we'd love to invite you to unmute yourself if you'd like to share any, uh, any brief questions. Please uh, don't hesitate. Hi. Yes, Marty. Okay. So, uh, first of all, I thought it was a marvelous lecture. I really, really enjoyed it. My question is, this notion that non-Jews aren't the equal of Jews seems to be something present within certain segments of the Jewish community. Today. 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 And I'm wondering, is this something that they are carrying forward? Or is this something that has evolved independent of how the Talmud itself may have changed? This is a great question. I mean, this is one of the reasons that I'm so interested in delving into these texts, right? So I, I feel like I always need to acknowledge uh, when we're talking about the Talmud's treatment of non-Jews, we're talking about a subject which is uncomfortable and risky, it's been dangerous, right? Real, really dangerous and has given a wide opening to anti-Semites to make terrible accusations against Jews with really tragic results. So that I wanna say, cause I'm also saying, well, some of those accusations uh, are not untrue, right? That there's some foundation for them in the tradition. Now you ask, is that what, what enlivens a sense in some corners of the Jewish world that Jews are really, are really a cut above. The Jewish lives are more valuable than non-Jewish lives, um, that there is a double standard in the eyes of the law. I think, unfortunately, yes. I think because we have, it's not the dominant voice in our text by any means, but it's in there. Uh, and uh, we know this as rabbinic Jews, uh, texts don't mean anything outside of their interpretations, right? Um, and so there is, uh, there, there are interpreters um, who can find a foundation for hateful views of non-Jews in our text, and they're there. Now, here's an interesting twist in history that has to do with censorship. So when the censorship begins, the reason that Christians welcome it 
is because they don't see themselves as in the circle of people who are considered idolaters. So they're, they're able to say, okay, Jews are going to treat idolaters poorly, but we're the good guys. We're on the Jewish side of the divide. Now, this is the, the, the funny thing that gets twisted in some corners of the Jewish world. In some corners of the Jewish world, they read that censored text uh, that says idolaters, but they think non-Jews. And so they're making an equation in their mind, all non-Jews are the best idolaters. I think that's the foundation for the understanding that Christians, that Muslims, um, are treated as idolaters. It's an innovation in the tradition of interpretation because in the medieval period, Jews who lived among Christians, like the Me'iri, tended not to judge Christians as idolaters. Uh, and Jews who lived in the Muslim world, like Maimonides, didn't see Muslims as idolaters. So um, in an earlier period of history, the dominant... Uh, the dominant interpretations allowed for a lot more interchange with non-Jews of Abrahamic traditions than some interpretations today, uh, which which paint all non-Jews as sort of a, with the, with the same pen. Wonderful, wonderful. Someone else. Yes, Jackie, was your hand up? Yes, it was. Um, wonderful lecture, Rabbi. Thank you. Really interesting. And I learned a great deal. Um, how, do you, how do you see this reconciling with the Ten Commandments? I mean, does that mean that the Ten Commandments don't have a universal moral application? Wow, what a question. Um, there's a question for what I think, and then there's a question about how other interpreters have read those uh, through, through history. So um, look, I think there are beautiful, many people read even those seven Noahide commandments and sort of bracket out the gloss that's there, right? A lot, a, a lot of Jewish thinkers hold on to the seven Noahide commandments as an expression of universalism in Jewish tradition. And, and they would say the same about, uh, about the 10 commandments. Um, I think it's interesting. Um, in general, the, tradi the, the tradition of Jewish interpretation has tended not to look beyond the bounds of the Jewish community. And we can ask a lot of questions about what, why that is, but probably most likely is it's because it's so recent in Jewish history that Jews would have actually had the power to govern over non-Jews. So that's an important thing to remember, that when it, this idea of a double standard before Jewish law is articulated in antiquity, it was not a time that a non-Jew would ever find his or her way into a Jewish court, right? It's, it's, um, it's an Im imaginary project. Um, because they didn't actually have that kind of power or control. Um, I, I'm going to suggest that now that Jews do have that power and control, there needs to be a higher threshold for our own ethical standards. And I think there is a great foundation uh, in the Jewish interpretive tradition for reading things universally. 
Um, but there's also a long tradition of uh, voices that are more interested in preserving Jewish lives than others. Um, I'm thinking of another example of where this comes up. We, there's a, this famous off-quoted statement. It's probably my favorite piece of Mishnah um, from Sanhedrin, which says one who destroys a single life, it's as if uh, one destroyed an entire world, and one who saves a single life, it's as if one saves an entire world. Um, so the, the original text of the Mishnah is quite clear that it's universal. Very interesting, though, in the when it's cited in the Talmud, this this new word has crept in there. And if you look at the printed Talmud, you see one who saves a single life in Israel. Um, not there in the original text, but it creeps into the text of the Talmud. And for me, it sort of illustrates this push and pull between particularism and universalism, which I don't think is new uh, to modern Jews. I think it's there all the way from the beginning of Jewish life. If I can jump in quickly here. <laughs> So, you know, many of us, uh, Rabbi Wasserman, expect in interfaith dialogue, um, uh, teachers of other faiths, ambassadors of other faiths, to reject texts in their tradition that are anti-Semitic or racist or sexist or whatever the case is. How do you see our responsibility in regards to when to reinterpret versus when to denounce a historical text? Ah, that's a great question. First of all, I'm so glad you brought it up because I always feel self-conscious about showing sort of the ugly side of our own tradition. I'm a Talmud teacher. I want people to love Talmud and then <laughs> right. I, show, uh, I show this ugliness. Um, so I think having these conversations is important. We certainly want Christians to be doing this with their texts, especially where their texts might encourage uh, anti-Semitism. So, so the question of, uh, there's a lot of questions. When do we study it? bring out the problems and when do we change them for me sometimes it's actually a question of venue right so when i'm in shul giving a devar torah i want to pick and choose among the tremendous treasury of jewish teaching and find those teachings which i think are going to be most uplifting most relevant and i'm going to look for the good stuff which for me is those those universalist messages but when I have an hour um, to study with folks, I think it's really important to bring out uh, to bring out that we have a checkered tradition our, ourselves. So what I'd love for our Christian friends to be doing is studying their own text, identifying the problems, and when they're in sort of ritual settings, when there there isn't time to unpack everything uh, and to highlight what's difficult or troubling or anti-Semitic, to make other choices, to not use those in ritual context. Now, it's easy for me to say that as an outsider. Um, one thing um, that people sometimes um, make an analogy to is when we study the constitution in school, we can see that there are crossouts in the constitution Right, so we can see that we have collectively decided as an American society that we don't want to keep considering certain Americans as three-fifths of a person. Those parts are X'd out. Now, we can't do that with the Torah, right? There's parts in the Torah that are difficult and there we have no choice. We interpret our way around them. 
the Talmud is, is, is a, a more interesting case because it doesn't have the same ritual status uh, as the Torah. So I think there's really an opportunity for us when we're talking about the Talmud to write new commentaries. Great, friends, we have time for one more question. Yes, uh, Michael. You're, you're on mute over there. Yeah. There you go. Great. Uh, I have a question about historical perspective. Talk about in different times adapted to history. Do we have an idea, you have any idea about the origins of those laws? Are, are they pre-Roman? Are they, is, is there any, any value of knowing the context in which they were compiled, first compiled? Or is that really kind of, we, we don't really know um, how far back the when it first came up? It's a really great question. You know, when we're talking about early rabbinic texts like the Tosefta, which I showed you, mm -hmm. um, we know that the Tosefta is from the Roman period. What we don't know is how long that tradition existed before it was formulated in the Tosefta. Probably it comes from the Roman period. Was it a more ancient um, tradition? It, it's it's possible, we just, we just don't know. Uh, but you're bringing up an, a really important point. I think uh, it's easier to understand how ancient Jews might have vilified non-Jews if they experienced non-Jews as imperial rulers who were harsh and violent against their community, right? So we can accept by providing some historical context of why we might find that animus to non, toward non-Jews. Um, I'm suggesting that even if we understand it historically, we still need to grapple with it um, so that it doesn't have the wrong kind of influence over our community in this time. But it also may be a, a window of, of our origins and, and, and what Jews are like at that period. So we're dealing even, even just from that standpoint, you know, its evolution also has the moral significance, but also has a, perhaps a, a tool for us to understand how our faiths evolved. Absolutely. I think you're right. Amazing. Amazing friends, I just want to highlight a few things before you jump off. Fr Tuesday, we're launching our Black and Jewish Dialogue, our Dialogue Tuesday at 1130. Um, hope you'll join us for that. We've got a dozen, dozen signed up already. Um, Black Gentiles and Jews um, uh, talking together. Uh, then on Tuesday, in, as part of our Science and Judaism series, we're learning from Professor Michelle Shiota, who's going to talk about the psychological sciences in relationship to Jewish thought. Wednesday, class two of 10-part series on the thought of Rav Cook, taught by someone in Jerusalem, the head of the Beit Rav Cook, uh, the center where Rav Cook's house and yeshiva was over there. And Thursday, Dr. Beth Berkowitz. We hope you'll continue to join us for that and much more. Rabbi Dr. Mir Wasserman, and this was fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. We scheduled this, as you said, pre-COVID, we set this up. <laughs> so we, we tend to plan ahead. And uh, thank you, Rabbi Stein Koken and the Bethel community for your partnership today. And great to see so many of you. Have a wonderful rest of your day. See you soon. Yeah. We also thank you so much.